2: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune into The Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, worldly folks. Uh, before we get into the meat of this episode of just an interview that I'm pretty excited about, I uh, I want to share some sad news for all of you, which is that Jen is, is going to be leaving. We Jen... Williams is going to foreign policy for a very exciting new job, but that unfortunately means she won't be a host of world anymore. So, Jen, you, I'm going to miss you, buddy. I'm really sad.
0: I'm really sad, too, to be leaving you guys. But I'm also really excited for this new opportunity. I'm going to be going over to foreign policy, so I'll still be doing a lot of stuff in the foreign policy space. So you guys will still um, hopefully get to see me. But I just want to say thank you. Zach, this has been, you know, the best part of my time at Vox by far trying not to get sappy here, get a little misty. Um, You know, Thursdays are always my favorite day of the week because we get to do worldly. Um, And thank you to all of our fans out there. We love your emails and it has been awesome to see, you know, when you send in fun comments, joking about us and uh, appreciating us or, you know, maybe sometimes not appreciating us, but that's okay. We like those comments, too, mostly, sometimes. But to all of you who have been really supportive and just, you know, our awesome, loyal fan base, thank you so much. We love you. And you can still find me on Twitter. Come say hi. I'm at Jen underscore Ruth, J-E-N-N underscore Ruth. So come say hi, and you can still, you know, make fun of my voice or whatever <laughs> else it is that I'm you glad wanna, you finally to do. That.
1: Fought back on that.
0: I'm going to say like so many times. You guys are going to love it. But yeah, essentially and basically. But thank you all. And thank you, Zach. And thank you, Sophie, our producer, and everyone part of the Worldly Fam. Uh, I'll still be rooting for all of you.
1: (sighs) Thanks, Jen. Bye. Bye. Very few people at this point doubt that 2020 is going to go down as an incredibly significant year in modern history. But what actually are going to be the parts of this year that we've all lived through that were significant, right? Not just that felt important in the moment, but really reflect deep trends and changes in the world that we're living in. We all lived through it, but what do we know about what we lived through and its impact on the world? That's what I'm going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media podcast network, with economic historian Adam Tooze, who has a new book coming out called "Shutdown," and it is a really fascinating book. comes out in early September on what we all just lived through and making sense of it through a contemporary lens. I'm Zach Beecham, your traditional Worldly host, and I'm delighted to welcome Adam on the show. Adam, your work is is really great, and I'm really glad that you went about writing this book. So, thanks for being here.
3: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So I guess I want to start with a sort of broad framing question, something that I was curious about, because you've written these relatively contemporary histories before. You wrote a book about the 2008 financial crisis. How do you think about writing what is essentially a history of the present when you don't have archival sources to work through in the way that you do? And you, you also wrote a book on uh, you know on Nazi Germany. It's a very different kind of history. How do you write about this, especially when we are in lockdown, for the most part, and you can't go to China to write about you know using the Chinese... Using Chinese government sources to talk about the origins of the virus, for example, in the ways that you might 30 years in the future.
3: Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a it's a pressing question. And it undoubtedly does for me personally register a shift in, in how I work. I I did start working, you know, in the archive 30 years ago now on, you know, late 20, late 19th century, 20th century paper records. And and obviously the, the work of writing contemporary history is radically different from that. The way it struck me last year was as a sort of compulsion. I didn't really feel I could do anything else. Um, That was in part because one of the things that happens with histories, after all, is that they become ways of making sense of the world. And Crash had had that impact, in part because Crash, this was the book about the 2008 financial crisis, because it was itself a kind of distillation of the work of interpretation and analysis that journalists and contemporary economists did all the time. And so when the events of last year began to happen, I was enrolled willy-nilly, whether I liked it or not, in this effort of sense-making. And and I, at that point, actually just personally, psychologically, emotionally couldn't digest the the sort of cognitive dissonance of of inhabiting and, and living in a world that was so, you know, it came very close to us. This is the most, the shock I've experienced most viscerally, personally, whilst, you know, Spending my day job, even though my day job, working on the history of President Carter's energy policy in the late 70s and early 80s, which is what I started 2020 doing. And so I, I decided to collapse the two things. And it's, it was different, again, from writing the history of 2008, because while I while 2008 was happening, I was working on a book about World War I, and I really wasn't paying that much attention. But this time around, you know, as a, as a commentator increasingly on contemporary events, I really, there was no escape. But then increasingly, the more I've thought about it, um, you know, the more I felt this is a this is a really very productive, generative exercise. In a sense, I'd almost argue that every historian should, should make at least one attempt to write contemporary history on the hoof as it goes along, because there's nothing that more viscerally, more, more directly exposes you to the way in which your interpretations always, in some sense, depend on priors, some priors about how the world works, but also expectations about how it's going to turn out. And this is true, I would insist, whether you're working on the immediate past or whether you're working on the 19th century or the early 20th century, or indeed even on the Middle Ages. You know, it's not by accident, for instance, that some of the best work on the witch trials of the early modern period was done in the immediate aftermath of World War II because people were preoccupied with issues of ideology. Whether we like it or not, we project backwards. When you're working on some ancient period of history, this is less pressing, less obvious perhaps, it involves more of a kind of leap. If you're working on the immediate past, every single choice you make is conditioned by some view of the future. So I think it's it was, it's been a very well, obsessive kind of activity, one that's hard to escape and extremely eye-opening intellectually as well about how those assumptions frame what we say. It is risky. I mean, what is the risk? The risk is simply that you end up looking stupid because you got it wrong. But that, too, I think, is a healthy thing for historians to experience up close and personally, rather than in a rather abstract academic kind of way, that you might be embarrassed or humiliated in some seminar. Writing about the the present in this way, which is, of course, the responsibility of journalists and commentators in all walks of life, exposes you to that risk much more... I was about to say, being wrong is a professional hazard I'm uh, very familiar with
1: (laughs) as a journalist. Yeah,
3: and you kind of have to own it, right? And, like, get over it. Like... That's what wagering on strong interpretations in the flow of events entails. And yeah, it's a lesson in humility to that extent.
1: So one of the central sort of intellectual wagers to pick up on that in in the book is your discussion and your treatment of the concept of neoliberalism, right? One of these very contested ideas, I ping pong back and forth from thinking that it's a discrete and very useful term to thinking it doesn't refer to anything at all, to thinking it refers to multiple things at once. So you have a very distinct view of what 2020 tells us about the the version of neoliberalism that is sort of generally summarized as the Reagan-Thatcherite consensus, right? The move away from public service and Keynesian economics to a um, a model heavily invested on on shrinking the size of the state, on privatizing – in some areas, not in others – on privatizing essential services, on generally uh, seeing – The government is less responsible for the market and for the welfare of individuals than it used to be in in the sort of the traditional post war model. Now, so that's the sort of you can correct me if I've misstated your definition. I'm sure I'm being imprecise in language because again, it's one of those contested terms. But you have a very interesting view on the the argument that many have made that the neoliberal consensus died in 2020 with the massive massive amount of public investment and uh, individual cash transfer programs and fiscal interventions by states. You don't think that's, that, that's the full picture. So tell me a little bit about your treatment of the concept here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you. I've pinged around, too. The, the book I did about 2008, I don't use the term, except as a term that becomes historically relevant during the period. I decided this time around, you know what? Hell, let's have a shot at this. And I'm distinctly in the camp uh, that, y- that you referred to as being, you know, this is a term that refers to several different things, or it's determined in several different ways. And I think you can think of neoliberalism as a body of doctrine, like a set of ideas associated with a group of economists. And I actually also take the view it's a much wider group of economists than is commonly thought. So it's not just the Austrians and Milton Friedman. I would include mainstream macro of the MIT, you know, heyday in the 70s and 80s and 90s within the frame. And I think that has suffered a real crisis of confidence, if you like. I also think that neoliberalism um, is a practice of government. I think it's also a social structure. I think it implicitly assumed a sort of geopolitics. And if you push the envelope really far out, I think you could say it also because as various people in the climate left have pointed out, it's coterminous with the development of modern environmentalism happens in the same period. Real existing, actual existing neoliberalism in the period since the 70s has also been framed within a set of assumptions about how we would manage our relationship with nature. And I think at the level of ideas, this is the easiest thing to talk about. Neoliberalism has really ruptured, right? The coherence of that body of thought is now shot to pieces. It was increasingly ad hoc anyway, uh, increasingly relied on mobilising a bunch of people who had nothing to do with Chicago. At that level, I think neoliberalism is manifestly a regime in crisis. I think you could say the same thing about one of what turns out to be one of the framing assumptions, which is globalisation is simple good, I call it innocent, because it doesn't change the geopolitical balance of power. That you know, is also an assumption that has been just trashed. If you believed, as people like Nordhaus did, whose work on climate economics and energy economics starts literally at the sort of generative moment of neoliberalism in the early 1970s with the oil price shock, that markets and various types of private insurance were going to take care of the problems of the Anthropocene, also, you could say things were blown to smithereens by 2020 because with climate, you could maybe discount, you know, you could engage in all of this fancy stuff they do to discount the risks far out. And so then you can decide it's a minor problem. The pandemic blew that up, right? This was blitzkrieg, Anthropocene. It was coming at us at the pace of days, hours, weeks. And if you didn't act, you you were in a mess. The two elements I think of neoliberalism, which in some senses have proven most resilient are precisely the dimensions of Social class inequality. If we think of neoliberalism as a project, really, of the restoration of a balance of class power and the instigation, the creation, and this, you know, making permanent of various types of structures of inequality, then 2020 did nothing but reinforce those. And in part, 2020 did nothing but reinforce those because what we saw in 2020, as we saw in 2008, was the mobilization of state resources, the state balance sheet, in other words, government spending and monetary policy, to do what? Well, in really very explicit terms, to conservatively stabilize the status quo. In other words, we proclaim that no one was responsible for 2020 other than, you know, opaque processes of natural evolution. So there is no moral hazard problem. So no one needs to get punished. So yes, it's actually legitimate to hand out hundreds of billions of dollars to businesses because they're not responsible for the situation that they're in. We also, and this was kind of unusual in the United States' recent history, gave out large amounts of money to badly off Americans who desperately needed it. So that was the innovative element. But the entire spending package, especially in 2020 itself, was explicitly conservative. It was about maintaining the existing order because no one was to blame for what had happened. What it in fact did, of course, was, as we're familiar with, supercharged the rebound in the financial markets and handed literally trillions of dollars to the better off Uh, members of American society. So to read that as, oh, well, a massive break with neoliberalism, because we saw a much more active role for government, seems to me to be naive when it comes to what government has historically been responsible for. One way of simplifying this is to say that neoliberalism has a Janus face. This is a formulation that goes back to David Harvey, right? It is at the one hand an order, a stable order of governmental constraint, a politics of discipline, but it also has an interventionist activist, at times even just frankly violent side, that is willing to bulldoze out of the way obstructions. So this would be the Margaret Thatcher phase, the strike breaking of the Reagan era, but also, of course, somebody like Pinochet in Chile. And so the practice of neoliberalism has always had that double edge of like rules and intervention
1: I want to push on this a little bit, not because I think it's wrong, but I think it's worth looking into some of the tensions here, right? Because obviously it's correct to say that the well-off and, and corporations have emerged in some ways as tremendous beneficiaries of government largesse. But in the United States, for example, there was a an individual cash transfer program with no precedent in modern American history, right? This was an expansion of our welfare state, and you write, you write this in the book, that Really is or was at the time putting us on par with what, and in fact, in terms of the immediate crisis response, ahead of what European states were doing, right there. It seems to me, especially in in, in the post-pandemic, well, we're not really in the post-pandemic era, obviously, with the Delta strain, especially, but you know, in in the the year afterwards, there's been this push, an almost ideological reconfiguration of what the mainstream. Uh, of politics in our country certainly and I don't know to what extent this is reverberating around the world but these ideological changes often tend to not stay confined within boundaries but you have uh, a faction of the Republican party becoming more open directly to the government being involved in redistributive projects especially when they benefit traditional families and then you have a biden administration that's embracing you know a child tax credit uh, and a more expansive welfare state, at least in proposal forms and in certain forms of legislation, than the Democratic Party had been willing to, certainly since Bill Clinton. And it seems like even if the immediate beneficiaries of much of what happened in 2020 was capital, that the year also had, it had this effect of changing the horizons of what we believe could be possible in certain places in terms of the state's role in our society and the economy.
3: I think that's absolutely true, which is why I reject the, you know, Robert Brenner's formulation from the New Left Review of where he describes this as simply escalating plunder. I don't think that does justice to the nature of this of this of this moment at all, to be honest. And you, you're absolutely right that, in a sense, this is the first moment in the experimentation with really large-scale generous welfare spending in America's history since the Great Society moment of the 1960s. And it turns out to be easy to do, and the MMTers are right. And so you can, if you want to avoid a crisis leading to mass poverty and huge evictions, simply decree that there should be no evictions and spend large amounts of money handing out checks to the least well off. In the CARES Act of 2020, this was balanced by huge giveaways to the more affluent. What's more striking and entirely confirms your point is that the the rescue package of the Biden administration, the single piece of really massive legislation they passed so far in March, was much more carefully targeted at middle and low-income Americans and really contains a minimum of pork. It's one of the least pork-laden large-scale spending packages that we've seen before. So this is a real shift. I think the pushback would come, and people like Mike Conchal spoke about this very effectively, even as it was happening, we have to differentiate between large-scale spending, which can be legislated for... And you can find majorities for moments of crisis. And the spring of this year, I think, still emphatically counts as a moment of crisis. And as you say, we're still in the middle of this. We're not by no means done. And the question of whether the American political system is capable of structural change, which fundamentally and in the long term changes this balance. And that is what so far, at least, in actual legislation has been signally absent so far. So I would agree with you that, as it were, the disinhibitedness of monetary and fiscal policy for the first time extended quite dramatically to offsetting the shock on those worst off in American society. And it is an eye-opening experience with what could be done. And on the other hand, what we've seen is the replication, if you like, of, and this is, as it were, where interesting stories about structural power come into play. It's very difficult for the American state machine to do some things And it's very easy for the American state to do others. It's very difficult for the American state to legislate an effective national unemployment insurance system. In fact, so difficult, no one would dream of attempting to do it. But it is quite easy, if necessary, to cut a bunch of checks, especially if you put the president's name on them and pump them out. Actually, easier to do that in the US, as you say, than in Europe, where it would, in fact, be very difficult to do that. But the Europeans do have a short-time working system, which meant that virtually no Europeans actually suffered unemployment, right? So there were trade-offs, which was a cheaper system, didn't involve the same budgetary effort, and minimized, if you like, the psychological stress to people who knew that they would have jobs to return to as soon as the furlough was over. So America, these actions, which were large-scale in the US case, were structurally constrained and were driven by panic. I mean, it's difficult, I think, you know, we should not forget... The scale of the panic last spring. I mean, I, as an economic historian, never imagined I would live through anything like it. Those 8 30 Thursday morning news releases from the Bureau of Labor Statistics showing the latest number of people enrolling were staggering. And against that backdrop, I agree, the American political system reacted in a way which was rather surprising. But I, the limits of that are apparent, and we're seeing them now in the difference between the first stimulus package the Biden administration was able to pass and what's the trench warfare that they're involved in now.
1: This this theme about panic and about different elements of the state working differently comes up in a number of different ways in the book. But one of the ones that was really interesting to me was the role of of not just the American central bank, which is like the key actor in the stabilization of the financial system in the story that you tell, and also obviously in reality, but also the sort of informal global network of central banks working together and coordinating uh, on a, a rescue package to make sure there wasn't another financial meltdown. Uh, on the scale of two thousand and eight, because obviously the economic indicators this time around were considerably
3: worse going into it. Oh yeah, much more fast moving. It was like nothing we saw in right. two thousand and eight. I mean, insane the unemployment wave striking through the world. So, North so, so, North.
1: so, to what extent can you say, uh, you know, there were some real and significant lessons that were learned in that last crisis that were applied effectively this time around? And to what extent can you say central banks were just doing what central banks? Have always done, and to what extent can you say that the response—and I know I'm p- piling on a series of questions, but they're interrelated—I promise—can uh, you say that the system worked effectively in terms of preventing a catastrophe, even if the end result, as you say, was to a degree exacerbating inequality?
3: Oh, well, this is an argument I, you know, that had with Dan Dresner going all the way back to I was thinking AM, yeah, I, where yeah. you know, you know, something worked. Whether we would call it a system, <laughs> I think, is a big question. Uh, to which I emphatically say, no, this is, you know, speak to any of the participants today about 2008 9. Was it a system? No, I mean, they were just improvising their socks off, grabbing deep into the historical canon, you know, essentially Ben Menanga's mantra of we are not going to fail the way we did in the 30s. You know, his promise he made to Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, you know, we learned the lesson, we are not doing that again. All else follows. What I think they've developed since then is a toolkit. And I'd use that metaphor. Dribble it because it's a little bit like Wittgenstein, it's pragmatic, it's discombobulated, it isn't a system. It's just a bunch of useful tools. Things like QE, which frankly, you know, thoroughbred blue blood economists don't even know why it works. They're not even (laughs) sure it does work if you're talking about conventional macro policy. But when you're talking about stabilizing the U.S. Treasury market... it it must work because it's effectively just a hydraulic operation of sucking treasuries off private balance sheets. And they did it on an epic scale in March of last year. And this toolkit, you know, is now has been acquired and elaborated upon not just at the centre, and the Fed is the centre of this system, but in the emerging markets as well, which are acquiring ever greater degrees of sophistication and competence in managing their risks. And what's really interesting is people like the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland, and the IMF in DC, have actually started to try and describe this. And and one of the things they conclude is like, it's clearly no longer Washington consensus, one size fits all, but it's also not a free-for-all. There are certain elements of coherence here. There are certain tools that people use. So we've moved, I would say, from a kind of, you know, a doctrinaire economics, which knew certain things were true and therefore you had to abide by certain rules, to a much more experimental, pragmatic kind of approach, which is empowering, and enabled many of the emerging markets to ride out this storm in very important ways, which we didn't anticipate. Many of me included were very alarmist about what was going to happen in the low income emerging market economies. Now the real economic shock in somewhere like South Africa has been savage. The pandemic is still running through, but they did not experience the financial meltdown, which is what we thought they were going to experience. So there's a greater degree of competence and agency throughout the system, and it is definitely a matter of learning tools, elements like that. But it is also, and this is very important to say, hierarchical. In other words, there are first movers, second movers, third movers. The first movers condition the possibilities for action for everyone else. There doesn't really even need to be a sit-down, coordinated meeting once upon a time, you know, smoke-filled. It doesn't even need to be a Zoom call now. All that really needs to happen is the Fed moves, then the ECB, the BOJ, the Bank of England move, And then within 48 hours, three, four days, the rest of the world's central banks can move too. So it's much more like the kind of tacit signaling that we see in oligopolistic markets where you just need one person to price lead and everyone else follows. And the Fed effectively did that in March. This was not a grand moment for coordination. In 2008, the Bush administration, staggeringly, like the most unilateral administration to that point, convened the G20 and there were formal consultative arrangements. That, of course, wasn't going to happen with Trump, but Powell didn't need to do that. He just needed to show they were going to do really big deal QE. They were going to flood the world with dollars. They opened up these things called liquidity swap lines. They created some new facilities called repo facilities. And everyone else then knew what to do. Was this system? No. Was this a learned set of techniques? Absolutely. (laughs) And one about which there is explicit communication around the world and which the IMF and the BIS are increasingly trying to formalise, not in the sense of a, you know, a rigid system, but in a sense of things you can do to manage these risks. And you, in an ad hoc way, country by country, try and not optimise, because that's a strong word, but as it were, muddle your way through using these kind of techniques. So somewhere like Brazil, for instance, has got enormous foreign currency reserves right now, so they can manage the depreciation of their currency without the whole system blowing up. They would, in due course, as they've done very recently, need to raise interest rates. But it's not the shock kind of reaction that we saw 10, 15 years ago, let alone in the late 1990s.
1: Um, So this point about the the Fed being a first mover is, I think, really significant of of some broader themes about America's role in the world and its influence over global politics and the global economy that... um, you know, ran through the year in a variety of different ways. And that's, that's the theme I want to pick up on, especially vis-a-vis China, when we come back from this break.
2: What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune into The Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prop G-Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G-Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we're back. I'm interviewing Adam Tooze about his new book, Shutdown, coming out in September about, well, the year 2020. Everything that happened, focusing particularly on what it says about... The global economy and well, the way that the world is going to look going forward—it's a series of not unambitious topics to tackle—and uh, the book makes for fascinating reading. I think the chapter, you know, that I'm reflecting on it that, that that sticks with with me the most is the one about the very beginnings of the pandemic in China and the way that China both massively screwed up and massively succeeded in its response. It's a very interesting paradox. Of the effectiveness of the Chinese state. And, you know, some of this, when you, when you talk about it, is framed in contrast with the way the West handled things. But first, I guess I want to talk about China itself and its internal politics, right? And what 2020 revealed about this country that is obviously the second most important country in the global economy and arguably will in not too long be the first? What do we learn about China
3: in 2020? Well, we learn about its vulnerabilities, for sure. You know, and there was that Chernobyl moment when everyone thought this was going to be that kind of a shock for the regime. So you could see that kind of pre-scripted narrative surfaced at that moment. A lot of liberal observers of the global scene right now are heavily invested in the idea that China must fall somehow, right? It could be middle-income trap, aging, ethnic disputes, or it could be a Chernobyl moment. So, hey, it looked like the Chernobyl moment. And the truth in that, I think, is that this was an absolutely catastrophic shock for the regime. This was a total failure. You know, it's a ruthless authoritarian regime, which doesn't put a high price on the lives of its enemies, the people it designates as enemies. But what we have to understand about it is that it is utterly preoccupied with the livelihoods of the, you know, 1.398 billion people that it regards as its constituency. Maybe it's a little less than that. But we're talking an immense population whose material welfare, whose standard of living, whose health is essential to the legitimacy of this regime, it delivers. It's a, as everyone says, it's an output legitimacy-based system. And health, as you know, no secret that Asian societies put a huge premium on health, on healthcare, on medicine, on diet. And SARS in 2003 was a savage shock to the legitimacy of the communist regime in China. Many of the people in Xi's entourage owe their careers to the purge that went through the party after the failure in 2003. And the thing about 2020 is it's infinitely worse than that. This was a complete disaster. The regime had promised itself that it had built a reporting chain that ran up from the provinces. And the provinces are the size of large European states, right? So this managing this ensemble is a, just a dizzying problem. It's like trying to run four Americas at once and hugely complex. So getting a true reporting chain out of the Chinese provinces is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And it failed. And then they had a huge problem on their hands and they screwed up. I mean, they they know it. It's clear that by February, this is a total disaster for the regime. The lockdown is dramatic. And because no one wants to be the next Hubei, no one wants to be the next Wuhan, province after province shuts down. By the middle of February, Xi is struggling to get provinces to reopen, even if there isn't much epidemic there. But just no one wants to be the next lot of people whose heads are on the chopping block for failing to manage this problem. And it is by far and a way the worst crisis that the regime has suffered since the reform period um, of the 1980s. Right, This is the most serious setback to GDP growth. And it's not just the big companies that are affected because China, like most economies, the vast preponderance of people are employed in small firms, services, and they are savagely hit by this shutdown as they are everywhere else in the world. There's a very interesting debate that spirals out of this in Beijing in the spring of 2020 about the actual structure of Chinese society and what the epidemic reveals about it. So potentially, this could have been a chong This could have been a disaster that rocked the regime. But speaking in soccer terms, it's as though after, as it were, shipping a couple of goals early on to the other side, the other side ran down the pitch and just took turns to fire own goals into their own goals for the rest of the game, for the following 90 minutes. They just persisted in taking the ball and shooting it into their own goal, over and over and over again. And the Chinese regime is kind of left with this, yeah, we shipped two, <laughs> like you people appear to have run up, you know, and, and we're joking, but you know, if you think about the ratio of the number of people that died, even allowing for substantial falsification of the Chinese data, the ratios are still, it's orders of magnitude difference.
1: In your, in your metaphor, we're talking about the broader West, right, the democratic world, scoring all these own goals.
3: The, yes. I mean, we, of course, immediately think of Europe and the United States, where the crisis was, was grievous. But, I mean, globally now, the place which is by far and the way the worst affected is Latin America. Um, fragile, 600 million people and still struggling with the pandemic in its most lethal form, you know, inadequate levels of vaccination, despite the sophistication of Latin American medical systems in some countries, shining exceptions, places like Chile, which have, you know, done much better, but Brazil and Mexico in particular have, have had appalling uh, et- epidemic experiences. Yes, so in that broader sense, that that wider world. Um, and India, of course, which in the Asian sphere is you know for a while at least was thinking of itself as a rival to to China
1: so there's this term you use called polycrisis which I really like as a way of uh describing what we've all just lived through and you know broadly speaking it, it means what it sounds like there are multiple different intersecting crises happening at once and uh, sort of forming and, and combining into a new kind of or different maybe new kinds of crises as a result of it and so in in the Polycrisis of 2020. We've talked about the economic shock. We've talked about the disease itself and and the management of it by mismanagement of it more accurately by pretty much everybody, with the exception of the South Koreans. But one thing we hadn't talked about is the sort of social crisis internally that you saw, you know, radiating out of the United States after the George Floyd protests. And it seems to me that that connects to the coronavirus mismanagement. In a very important way, right? Because one of the, the major concerns, as you say, is the sort of process of own goals and global competition or ideological competition with China, right? The West was trying to show, I, I don't love the term the West, but it's a useful shorthand for the United States and Europe, so I'll keep using it. It was trying to show that our the, the democratic model could succeed under these terms of, you know, these conditions of dress. and Not only did we fail in part due to political division, but then we had a massive whole entirely other set of political divisions that that played into and connected up with the political divisions over the coronavirus, leading to what, what, I mean, any objective observer would say, uh, an appearance of severe fragility at the heart of the democratic world.
3: Yeah, fragility is, I think, even a slight understatement, right? I mean, explosive, (laughs) explosive division. I've never lived in a society before in which talk of civil war seemed just kind of commonplace and kind of reasonable up to a point. Absolutely dramatic. Um, And at the heart of power, you know, not in Italy, though Italy, of course, in a sense, did suffer a crisis of that type with the appointment of Mario Draghi as prime minister. And Italy matters because it's the core of the eurozone problem. Managing Italy and its debt is the future of Europe as a financial entity. And what we've ended up with is not Biden, but the appointment of Mario Draghi, an unelected ex-central banker as the the head of government, which makes everyone outside (laughs) Italy and Europe feel very pleased, and the Italians themselves, those who were asked anyway, like for a while happy. But this is a, a weird malfunction of democracy too. But yes, of course, everyone in the United States, and not just in the United States, I promise you, is looking at this country and going, what on earth? And I am absolutely not one of the historians who suddenly thinks, okay, all hands on deck. What do I know about crises? Okay, this is the Weimar Republic. I mean, I find I find that a very unhelpful way of thinking about these problems, apart from anything else, because it exoticizes them. I mean, it, it makes them seem as though they were sort of somewhere from somewhere very different. In fact, you know, it's an authentically all-American crisis and fully featured. I mean, everyone's involved. The, the, the population on the street in its full diversity, people waving guns at each other, the law, business, like in a way which, you know, is sort of, I mean, Marxist political economists and state theorists are just staring at this in disbelief because it's so rare to actually see the barons of business appear on the scene and explain out loud why democracy is something they actually sort of have an investment in up to a point, you know. And how, I mean, in most, the most sort of legendary moment is this guy who explains how during civil wars, people file fewer expense reports. So it's like, you know, in the interests of expense accounting software that there shouldn't be a civil <laughs> war. I mean, it's the sort of thing that just boggles the mind and begs the question, of course, of whether they would have said the same thing if Sanders had been the Democratic Party candidate. But in the choice was between Biden and Trump, you know, they turn out. And and though, of course, we still don't quite have the full picture and probably will, the military in the picture, too. We shouldn't ignore the fact that the ultimate, you know, the, the ultima ratio, the final reason of state was, in fact, in play in this crisis as well. So, yes, absolutely spectacular. And one hypothesis about the Chinese, and it's only one because, you know, so it's so opaque, is that Beijing believes that the West is so degenerate at this point that it's just time to bulldoze. There's no point in negotiating Because the clock on us is running out. So why would you, if you're in a hurry, wait, you know, for us to do whatever we're going to do? Like, they are basically just going to set their terms and move. And some leading interpreters of the Chinese regime actually think that is the prevalent hypothesis on their side.
1: It's one of those things, like, I know you're resistant to saying it's the Weimar Republic, etc. But I feel like, you know, when you're doing a history of the present, there should be some sort of historical analog that is reasonable to draw on without you know without taking away from and I think that your point about it being all american is really important we've spent uh you know some some time in early august talking about Tucker Carlson going to budapest to broadcast from you know an authoritarian capital admiringly not 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 critically and you know i've i've written a lot about this about the way in which the american right is developing a sort of um you know uh leftist in 1919 admiration for the regime in Budapest. But the processes of democratic decay here and social crisis in this, and I'm focusing on the U.S. not just because I'm an American, but because it's at the center of the international system, you know, they're they're mostly homegrown, right? Almost exclusively without no one, no one in Russia or China or let alone Hungary, is really doing much to push the Americans into where we are.
3: Well, except if you believe certain people in the Democratic Party for most of the Trump administration. But yes. Yeah, who love to overstate the case. Yes, absolutely. I I think that is itself a morbid symptom. Like, is it itself a degenerative symptom?
1: I I struggle personally with thinking of any, I don't even want to say one-to-one analogy, a reasonably good approximation that one can draw on to describe what has happened to the international system as a result of of American decay uh,
3: in, in the past year. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. that Obviously, to think at all, we have to think by way of analogy, because all our concepts are formed essentially by way of analogy. But when we're pushed into epochal-type analogies, I think you have to buy into some metaphysics, right? You have to basically believe that history is cyclical or it's eternally unchanging, such that across time, you can say, well, that crisis is analogous to this crisis, Um, And I don't. I mean, I actually think that history is dynamic, I think, by way of sort of the stories that climate scientists tell. I think we're on the great hockey stick, you know, and it's massively accelerating and continuously progressing. So then it's quite possible to say, as you just did, that this is probably unique. We've never had a massively nuclear armed former unipolar state meltdown in the way that the United States was in the process of doing and may still continue to do in years to come. That is radically and fundamentally unprecedented event. Can we understand it historically? Well, yes, we have fragments, terms, concepts, which, of course, we have to employ. But above all, we can understand, understand it genealogically. We can understand it generatively. Like, does this have origins in the progress of American history, just the process of American history over time? Yes, of course it does. Are there certain structural features you referred earlier on to the way in which as it were, states are plural. They're not just a single entity. They function in, they fire on different cylinders in different paces. So they're rather disarticulated engines. And this is absolutely characteristic of American history. I mean, if you think about the long durée of America's rise to globalism from the late 19th century onwards, the norm is various types of disarticulation, right? Various types of structural instability and incoherence, whether it's to do with you know mass protests against the Vietnam War, for instance, which the Viet Minh deliberately played on so as to try and win the war, not on the battlefield, but by disassembling the American home front. Whether it's the classic Wilson moment where, you know, the American president goes to Versailles. It's a staggering event. Forget the Paris, you know, the Paris Climate Conference. Remember the Paris Peace Conference. You know, you go, you negotiate the end of the biggest war in history to date, and then it turns out the American Congress, the Senate, as always, the Republicans in the Senate won't give you the majority. Right, so the moment, the benchmark we have, after all, which is the sort of globalist moment of the 40s through, you know, maybe Kennedy, early Kennedy, is really rather a unique phase in American history, where you could say, and then some people have nostalgia for the first Bush and the Reagan administrations, and you can see, to a degree, where that comes from. Though I would argue that the social foundations of that already fragmenting beneath their feet. So, I think that state of discombobulation, that state of incoherence, is, is intelligible historically, but not by way of analogy but by way of the understanding of how those kind of structural problems develop in American society and politics over time.
1: So to what extent, you know, you, the book sort of, you self-consciously limit it to around the January 6th attack as sort of the, the 2020 gets a little bit of an extension into 2021 for purposes of the narrative. Um, in the, in the, the months since when the narrative in the book stops, what have you found sort of vindicated by the events? And what do you think already you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't written that? Maybe it's a loaded question for an author, but you know what? What, what parts of your predictions or, or your thoughts are, are being borne out by current events?
3: No, I mean, of course, you have writing a book like this on a time schedule like this one. I mean, you'd be crazy not to admit that you live in fear. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I had an elaborate like contingency clauses built in with my editors. The entire production process was designed so that we could deal with some of the more obvious contingencies. So it's it's a completely fair question. If the Delta variant runs riot in China and they don't get a handle on it, I wouldn't say that that, as it were, fundamentally destabilizes the book because you could still say it was a period piece. But it would it would it would just simply shock me. It would surprise me. It would change my understanding of the world if the Beijing regime cannot get a handle on Delta, or at least can't immunize enough people. The last last set of figures I saw for the for the scale of immunization in China impressed me. So. Maybe they've actually done enough, even though their vaccines clearly don't work as well as as the the best Western ones. That would really shake my understanding of the world. Unfortunately, in a sense, my rather pessimistic reading of the scale of the rupture that America has, and the Democratic Party in particular, has achieved with the Clinton-era orthodoxies of neoliberalism has been rather confirmed in the sense that I think we still remain hobbled by the constraints that, you know, democratic government functions under in the United States, Um, self-imposed to a very high degree because of the filibuster rules and so on. But, but, you know, this is a regress. Why do they commit to the filibuster rules? Because those are then real constraints too. And, you know, heaven knows we overthrow the filibuster and the Republicans come in. Just imagine the, the hell that they could potentially unleash. So that, I think, is, you know, in some sense, the sort of pessimistic core. I've been waiting... There would be one thing I would be really delighted to be refuted over, which is the book takes a wide horizon. I mean, I'm like all of us, I think we're struggling, all of us, to sort of encompass the scale of global action right now. And the pandemic was an absolutely global event. And so I wrote a chapter about the question of debt relief for the poorest countries, you know, concerted global action on that scale. And this summer could have been a moment when the g20 the g7 got together and really backed the program outlined in black and white costed cost benefit analysis done by the imf and the world bank on the you know the global rollout of vaccination the idea that we're only safe when we're all safe and and the the book analyzes the impasse over this in 2020 and it would have been sort of joyous to be refuted by grand action this summer. And unfortunately, the fact of the matter is that, and I think it will preoccupy, ought to preoccupy social scientists forever after, we are literally confronted with a situation where there are trillion dollar notes lying around on the street in the sense that the overwhelming consensus of opinion is that a concerted, generous, large-scale global vaccination programme is the best way you can spend a dollar right now and the rates of return are a 10 to 1, 100 to 1 and forget the soft power you know the virtue element of right. this and no one is acting with the appropriate scale and speed you know america still has delivered as far as I, I i think the latest numbers i've seen you know in the order of 100 million doses maybe slightly more than that now with the with the donations program to the global system this is this is grotesquely inadequate to the scale of the challenge that we face and that is unfortunately where so far is it where the book is standing up. And I wish it, I wish it, I genuinely wish it didn't.
1: Adam Toos, thank you so much. The book is shut down. It is out on September 7th. Uh, I really I can't emphasize enough to you listeners how much I enjoyed uh, not only the book in general, but specifically the chapter on China, which unfolded to me like a, like a bit of a horror story. You know what's coming, you know the monster is going to show up soon, and you know everybody's going to die but you you have the sense of being gripped while it's coming and then the rest of the book of course deals with the fallout of what happens in that in that early chapter but it it really really has stuck around so adam thanks again Appreciate so it. much and and I hope our listeners enjoy your book as, as much as I did so you may have noticed at the end of this interview that I didn't do the normal raid and subscribe and review thing and that's because I have some sad news. With, with Jen's departure, I think it's time for Worldly to hang up our spurs. We've had a great run with all the great work from Yohi and Jen and Alex. And I've I really loved being y'all's gateway to the world every week, talking to you about, well, <laughs> God, there's not, except for maybe Antarctica, there's not a continent that we haven't talked about. Uh, we've had our interests, obviously. We've had the things that, that we've come back to again and again. Uh, and we just really love that you all, the listeners, have enjoyed it and learned with us and been there for us, for all of it. It's It's been a pleasure being your host, and I hope you keep reading Vox.com and you keep listening to other Vox Media Podcast Network shows, uh, because this isn't the last thing I'm going to do in audio. I'm going on paternity leave in September for the second half of the leave I took earlier. I'm not having another kid, as far as I know. Uh, but... I'll be back after that in late October and slash early November, and we'll be dreaming up new ways for me to talk to you all. So if you're if there's anything you're interested in me covering, send me an email, zach at vox.com. Let me know. And again, one final big, huge, mega shout out to Sophie Lalonde, who is a wonderfully talented audio producer and also will be staying with Vox to continue helping us make our audio programs great. So Sophie... Thank you so much for everything that you do. And listeners, I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did.
2: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof. G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship of Prof. Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier.